Well, good morning, my friends. It's a little unusual that I'm uh, having to record our uh, lesson today, but I'm excited to get into the book of Ephesians with you. So everybody grab your Bible. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 9. <clears throat> I want to remind you that Paul's uh, been specifying in the chapter before this, um, that there are five ways we're supposed to demonstrate in our lives that we're being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then he told us to give thanks. And now he's going to give us the fifth way that we can demonstrate that we're being filled with the Holy Spirit. He talks about in chapter 5, verse number 21, that we're to submit to one another. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to look at the home first and then at the workplace, and he's going to talk about what I would call the rules of engagement. If uh, you have any interest in how uh, movies go that are military in nature, you know that inevitably one of the heroes is going to ask, what are the rules of engagement? What can I do under what sets of circumstances? And that's exactly what Paul's now going to clarify. What are the rules uh, and the way that we're supposed to make certain that we're demonstrating being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he directs his attention first to the house, to the home. And he, he uses a word there, submit, uh, very carefully. It's a military term, actually, and it means to line up the troops. It's an order of authority. Uh, it's the idea to be under a certain rank. He's asking for mutual submission, He's asking both the husband and the wife to be team players. Now, he's not saying they're equal in rank, but they're equal in loyalty to their leader. Our motivation for doing this mutual submission is a reverence for Christ. Submitting is a way of worshiping and obeying the Lord. One writer wrote, Our mutual master causes us to have a special deference for one another. It's this deference that leads to the kind of unity and harmony that Paul's been emphasizing in the book of Ephesians. It won't take you long to remember that back in chapter 4, verse number 3, he told us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. So this mutual submission is a, is a step. It's a way for both parties to show a special deference for the other. Now he starts by directing his attention in chapter 5, verse 22 to the wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the, ch as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, let's take a second here and ask ourselves, what was it like for women in the first century? And so I did a little bit of looking, and, and let's talk about the Roman world. In the Roman world, the law provided no rights for women at all. Under the Roman law, she remained a child forever. Her father's power over all things in her life was transferred to her husband at marriage. She never had any rights. Under the Greek world, a respectable woman, one of, of some means, had no kind of independent existence and, and there was never a, an opportunity for her to express her own mind. In many cases, she lived uh, in a secluded part of the house, was not seen in public, and often lived 
you know, a, a, a kind of a parallel life to her husband. Now, in some of the lower levels of society, it wasn't quite like that. But at no point did a woman in the Greek world have any standing in society. Same thing for the Jewish woman. Uh, she was her husband's possession. She was owned in, in, in the kind of the same way he would own uh, goats or sheep or, or other animals or, 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 or things of un, under like property under his control. He could do with her as he wished. She had no legal rights. And, and, and humorly, I found one of the, the prayers that a Jewish man might have, might have prayed every day. He said he might say that uh, he was grateful that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In general, wives only had obligations to their husbands. But nothing was expected of the men. So into this world... God's standard for marriage was revolutionary. When Paul made this statement, we need to be submissive to one another, he was making a world-class change in their mindsets. Now, recognizing rather that submission is, is an order of authority, wives then are to submit or to adapt themselves to their husbands as a service to the Lord. <coughs> Forgive me. Marriage was meant to be a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church. Now, let's stop, stop a second. And if I was sitting in a class, I would be looking at all of your eyes right now. And there, there would be a bit of sadness in the room. So let's, let's make sure we understand what submission is not. Biblical submission does not mean that there are no differences between the genders. Don't, don't, don't have the mindset that God was just smooshing it all into one, one pile. There is still an order of authority. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it clearly states that God made man and made woman. There is still a sense of, of a line of authority. But biblical submission does not imply inferiority. Gals, it has absolutely nothing to do with abilities or gifts. This is not a, a, an arrangement for the marriage uh, in, in some superficial way. Uh, this is an, an opportunity for there to be reason and order in the home. Now, this kind of submission does not require silence. Um, we're, there's nowhere in the Bible that, that says that in the, in the confines of your own home that a woman cannot express herself. Although, keep in mind that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 4, uh, he does talk about an unfading beauty that is found in a gentle and a quiet spirit. But in, in, in a broader sense, this is not implying that women have no say, no involvement in decision making. It's just a, an acquisition, or not acquisition, acquiescence on her part to adapt or to submit to his spiritual leadership. Now remember that this submission is directed into the home into the sphere of the home. It's not a, a, a directive to society as a whole. The wife is, submit to, is to submit to her husband in the sphere of her house. This is, not, this is not a rule for all of society or all workplaces. Now let me give one more comment about what this submission is not. Biblical submission does not require the wife to obey her husband like a kid is required to obey their parents or like a slave is told to obey their master. There's a different word that Paul could have used. Here he's not using that word. 
The way to look at this is that these are two people who are equal in God's eyes, not inferior to each other in any way. It's just that the wife, as an equal, chooses to place herself under the spiritual authority of her husband so there can be good order and good function in the family. She's not releasing her dignity in any way. She's expressing that lofty role so her family can meet the design that God has ordained for the family. Now, what are her motives? What are her reasons to want to submit? Well, first off, it's her obedience and respect for Christ. You know, if you think about it like that, that it really has nothing to do with the husband. It has to do with how she wants to respond to Christ. He's asked her to do this uh, as, as Christ, as the head of the church. And he's, he's, rec- he's, he's, he's recommending, he's asking for her obedience and respect as unto him first. Secondly, her recognition is that her husband is a spiritual head under that leadership of the Lord. So her reason or motive to submit is, is in recognizing the order that God has put out. And thirdly, she wants to model that, the union that Christ has with this church. So God's saying, if, if the home works well, it's a great picture of my relationship with the church. We often talk about submission in a very negative way. And Paul is not demeaning women at all. He is looking to establish a clear order so great things can happen spiritually in a home. Then, in verse number 25, he turns his attention to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing cleansing her by the washing with uh, water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So husbands, love your wives. What kind of love is this? Those of us that are Sunday school grads know that there's at least three important words for love in the Bible, and this is indeed agape love. This love is kind of uh, an expression of a decision rather than a response of a spontaneous heart. In other words, this is not emotional. This is, this is reasoned. This is thought out. This is, this is a commitment. The husband is commanded to continually decide to practice self-denial for the sake of his wife. It's a, self, a special, unselfish, and consistent kind of love. I put in your notes, there are two kinds of headships, and, and I, I depicted it by saying there's a worldly headship and a, and a godly headship. The worldly headship, th- this is the guy who says, I'm your, I'm your head, so you take your orders from me. You must do what I want. There are some things I want you to do for me. Um, okay, I get that. 
That's a selfish, self-centered, inconsistent uh, man who does not understand the command that God has on his life. On the other hand, when there's godly headship, this is what he says. I am your head, so I must take care of you and serve you. Here are the things that I want to do for you. Now, wow, gals, I can't believe that if we had that kind of a husband, it would not be very easy to submit. That husband is, is commanded to put himself out first. The motive for him to behave this way you know, it has, has three elements to it. And, and the first one is because that's what real love is like. I'm turning in 1 Corinthians 13 and looking at verses uh, 4 and 5, maybe a little further. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongdoings. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. When the husband does the kind of loving he should, it is easy for the woman to do the submitting that she should. The second motive a guy has for doing this kind of love is that it's God's pattern for the home. Remember, the word submit is the idea of of having good order. It's that military term that that asks us to um, be in line so that there can be productivity in the home, spiritual productivity. The husband who recognizes that God has a pattern for the home steps to the plate, wants to fulfill his role. And thirdly, his motive is the fact that the husband and the wife are one. One flesh. This kind of unity, this kind of order um, provides for the unity that's necessary in a home. Now, a special word uh, back in Ephesians chapter 5 on this expression, washing with water uh, through the word. Let me find it here. He says um, in verse number 26, Uh, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. The the idea there is is a very interesting one. The word for the the term in that verse for for word, washing uh, with the word, is not the usual logos word that we find in so many places in the New Testament. This particular expression means a spoken word. The idea is that it's referring to the power, the unbelievable power that a husband has when he speaks words to his wife. Now, my usual illustration of this, and I think it's a powerful one, is out of the Song of Solomon. So if you turn to the Song of Solomon with me, you'll you'll see in chapter 1, the woman begins to describe herself. So let me get to the Song of Solomon here. Yeah, I have to go through the books in my head just like everybody else. But anyway, I got it. Song of Solomon. Um, in verse number uh, 5 and, and a little bit in verse 6, she responds uh, and, and gives a kind of a self-description. Uh, she says, I am dark, uh, yet lovely. Um, o daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of, 
a keter like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the by the dark by the sun rather. Now what she's talking about is because she has to work out in the fields. She is deep dark, which is not a a suntan in those days was not a uh, was not a desirable thing. And she, she's describing herself as being sun blenched or or very unattractive because she's so swarthy. Now, it, it, as she looks at herself like that, then on comes the the scene of the of the lover. The lover comes on the scene, and he, and he starts speaking to her in some incredible words. He talks about how lovely she is and what she looks like and some of her features. So now, in chapter two, verse number one, she goes back to a, a self evaluation. She's going to describe herself again, and this time she says, "I am the rose of Sharon. I am the lily of the valleys." What happened was her husband's words. Her self-esteem was completely affected by the spoken words of her husband. And that's why God makes such a big deal about that in Ephesians uh, 5. He wants women to submit, but he wants men to, to love them in such a way that clearly they would want to do that. Now, he shifts uh, now to the children. He's still talking about the home. But he's going to talk about kids in chapter 6 and starting in verse number 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. This is indeed the first commandment with a promise. It's a commandment to, do, to obey. And, and the definition of obey is very simple. Do what you're told. Um, the requirement to obey was laid down in the first Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 12. God says that when a kid obeys, they're honoring their parents. Now, we get a great illustration of this out of the life of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And you can see that the scriptures record for us a little bit about his childhood, not much. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it says that then he went down to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. Was obedient to them. Now, if Christ is going to be obedient to his parents, that is a pretty good um, role model or example for how our kids ought to be. Now, in modern culture, we get a lot of conversation about uh, children should have a vote in, in everything they do, and uh, they should have equal uh, consideration in the home, and they shouldn't be told to do things. They should be allowed to reason their way. And, and I would say that'd be great if you had a mature, godly, selfless kid. But most of us, since we're not all that mature, godly, or selfless as adults, certainly are not like that as children. We need direction. We need, we need someone to help us, to guide us. So when our parents tell us something to do, the response is we're to honor them. We honor them by, by obeying them. Now, this is an affectionate kind of respect that people uh, have. Um, that it, when we recognize a spiritual authority in our lives, we honor them. We, we respect them. And honoring our parents includes uh, respect. Now, one, one uh, commentator said this about kids as they grow up. Honoring our parents includes respect, love, and obedience as long as childhood and youth continue 
And then the gradual modification and transformation of these affections and duties into higher forms as man and woman draw on. In other words, what he's saying is when a child is young, little, in your home, under your authority, yes, the kind of uh, relationship we have, you have with them demands that, that honor and respect. But now, as you grow up, how, how do you relate to your, your adult parents? You're an adult now, they're an adult. What, what is do them? What happens when an adult uh, is, is given instruction by, an, by their adult parent? Do they have to obey it? I think what's being said here is there are ways to continue to show honor and respect But an adult parent should not anticipate or expect that an adult child will obey in the same in the same way that that a kid would. Now, the dishonor, the idea that they don't do that, is is prominent in the scriptures. The the recourse, not the recourse, the response that should be there. In fact, there is a penalty for such blatant disobedience. The Bible would call it cursing a parent. If you looked in Exodus 21 in verse 17 or Leviticus 20 verse 9, the penalty for cursing a parent is the same penalty that was was demanded as if someone blasphemed God. God sees the parent as the spiritual authority. That, That then puts a great responsibility on the part of the parent to be his representative in that home to be the kind of parent they're supposed to be, to show the kind of love and patience and and to provide the kind of wisdom and direction that's needed for these kids so that they don't curse. The Bible says anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. That's a harsh statement that's underscoring the importance of that order in the home. The children cannot run the house. The parents must show direction. Note, too, that the scope of their obedience, as outlined in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, which is a parallel passage to this Ephesians 5, it says, Children, obey your parents in everything. Everything. Eat this. Wear this. Go here. Don't go there. Don't do this. Turn off your phone, etc., etc., etc. So children need to be taught that their, their motive, their reason for responding to their parents is they recognize the spiritual authority that parent has before God to direct and nurture and train that child. And the child's response, obey and honor their parents. Now, he's going to take one more step and call out the fathers themselves. Now, I understand that we could put mothers in there as well, But I think he's making a point. I think Paul specifically wanted to say, now dads, let me, before I go on to the workplace discussion, give one final clarity to you. Don't exacerbate your children. Exasperate your children. He says in verse 4, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Don't Don't irritate them. That's what that word means. Don't intensely irritate them or frustrate them. Everyone who's ever parented someone knows in the heat of a discussion when the lights in your kid's eyes go out. I can remember it in my own experiences with my goddaughter. When I was out of control, when I was angry, when there was such a a moment of of lacking self-control on my part, I could just see the lights going out in their sweet little eyes. 
The problem wasn't her at that moment. The problem was me. So he's saying, don't do this. Don't let irritation or frustration get you to a point where, where you can't parent in patience and in love. Ephesians 4.31 is a great guide for, for parenting. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander. Let's translate that. Moms, dads, avoid yelling. No excessive reactions. Don't discipline out of reaction. Take a moment. Go to your, go to your room. Get a, a quick cup of coffee. Go, go do whatever is necessary to do to gain some control. So that's what you're not to do. Don't irritate them. Don't frustrate them. But instead, he gives them three specific things that that dad is ultimately responsible for. And moms are a, a tremendous uh, part of, of this process as well. He says, first, bring them up. So the idea of the bring them up means to provide for them, to care for them, to show a heart of love to them. It's the idea of nourishing um, but it's not just that. It's the idea of providing for them. Um, the, the dad isn't the one who gets uh, all the resources of a home. The dad is not the one who, who gets the you know, choice piece of meat every time. He is supposed to be showing his concern and care to bring up his kids, making sure there's plenty of food on the table, that, that they're warm at night, that they have what they need to flourish as a, as a young individual. Show care for them. Uh, show up at, at their events. Respect them with, with a, a heart full of love. <coughs> I apologize. It's the way that we nourish our children. Just like you nourish a plant by constant supervision, by making sure there's plenty of water and occasionally some soil amendments and whatever, raising a child requires a lot of attention. Bring them up. Be, be engaged. In, with your children. And the second says in the training. So what are you supposed to be engaged in? Specifically in their training. Now the word training there. Sometimes it gets translated discipline. But it's the idea that you are responsible. To see your children. Have the abilities. The skill. And the character. They need for life. Now of course in the in the culture. That Paul was writing this letter. If you were a tent maker, you taught your son how to be a tent maker. Likely, they grew up and did that, as well as well the girls would have participated. So if a dad had a skill, he passed that on. Or he made sure that, that the child got in some sort of a pr- apprenticeship with someone who could teach them a skill. All right, so in our culture, maybe it isn't so much that we're passing on exactly those set of skills, but the responsibility still rests primarily with the father to make sure your kids have what they need to get on in life. And that doesn't necessarily mean um, a college education for every kid. A wise parent evaluates their kids and chooses, and helps them choose rather, a course of action that will maximize their gifts and abilities that God has given them. And don't forget that he is responsible in that training for their character. For their character, that training and character. That same word training shows up in 2 Timothy 3.16 where God says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. That's that word, training. So, so dads, make sure that you are in God's word, sufficient to be able to pass it on to your children in a way that allows them to grow and develop and their character to be responsive to the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, he says, instead of 
irritating and frustrating your kids, make sure that you give them instruction. Now, the word instruction here is not the same as training. Um, the word instruction is more of a term of warning. It's the idea of providing course correction. Now, this lesson is not the time to get into what kind of discipline parents ought to give their children. But I will say to you that the idea of warning, of doing course correction, is, is a central theme of good godly parenting. And parents ought to search the scriptures to find the appropriate way to make certain that your kids get course corrections. Some kids only need a slight little nudge, and some of them a whole lot more. So make sure that as a, as a, as a parent, you're choosing that which will give your kid the maximum opportunity to follow after God. <coughs> in the fourth case, um, he, he mentions that uh, in terms of uh, what he's supposed to do, that all of this is supposed to be in the Lord. Our entire focus on parenting is the guidance towards living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. It's right there in chapter 5, verse number 10. So all of these things in the, in the responsibilities of what a, a dad and by extension a mom is supposed to do is to focus on giving that child every opportunity to grow up and, and choose to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So then Paul moves out of, the, of the, the confines of the home and begins to, work, to, begins to give us our focus or attention on work relationships. He says in chapter 6, verse number 5, excuse me, yeah, verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he, he is slave or free. Now, slaves in the, in the Roman world around the first century, there were about 60 million of them. They constituted upwards of about a third of the population. Paul understood this. This wasn't a minor matter uh, in his world. This was the way the world was defined. And so Paul's coming in here again with an equally astonishing, revolutionary set of thoughts about how work relationships ought to be. So from our perspective, we're going to look at the slave as the worker. And Paul's establishing a, a pattern for the behavior of, the, of even the modern worker. The modern employee is to do the same things that Paul was calling out for the slaves to do. First thing he's calling them out to do is to obey their masters. Literally, it just means do what's expected of you. Follow people's instructions. If you have a supervisor, follow their instructions. And if you're given an opportunity to, to make a comment or to make a suggestion, great. But if at, at the end of the day you're told to do something a certain way, you do it their way with no grumbling, with no you know, whining. You obey your masters. You do what is expected of you. Secondly, he says, you do this, you, you do this obeying, you perform it with a sincere heart. That means you, that you, you give your work a real effort. It's not lip service. You're, you're, you're into it. You're up to your elbows in it. Um, you're doing what they, what they need in the best possible way. You know, the idea number three is that you obey in a manner like slaves would obey Christ. 
we need to check our motives. Why are we uh, being submissive to our, our, our employers? The goal is that we are submissive because we see them, again, as an authority, a spiritual authority in our lives. And when they make expectations, we want to obey those expectations. We want to meet those expectations as if we were working directly for Christ. And then he touches a, a lovely uh, expression here when he says, serve wholeheartedly. I think that refers to both the volume of our work, maybe the quality of our work, and even the creative way we address our work. I think it, it's, a, it's another way to reflect our wholehearted devotion to the Lord. We bring everything we got every day we show up at work. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He shifts the attention now to the masters. Just like he went from, from wives to, to husbands and from children to parents, now he says, wait a minute, there's one more piece to this puzzle. Verse 9, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Once again, he's wanting to set up order. He's setting up a decent military kind of order so something can get done. But he wants these masters to recognize, as it relates to value and worth, there is no difference between them and the slaves. They are to be treated in a manner that the master himself would appreciate, because both of them are under the lordship of the master. So the pattern for these modern work relationships kind of fall into two categories. One, bosses should not threaten their workers. Nobody wants a boss who creates an atmosphere where fear is a part of the work relationship in all of its subtle forms. God's saying, wait a minute, you don't set up a work relationship where people have to tiptoe around you in a work environment. There should be openness and communication and an exchange of kindness and so on. And secondly, he says that those in authority cannot show any kind of favoritism. You can't pick out your favorites. Workers should be evaluated and appreciated for their work on the basis of their work, not, not on the basis of a relationship they have with you or some other kind of status or position that's made up. People need to work as unto the Lord and be appreciated for that work as unto the Lord. So slaves, you do your best. Masters, you treat them as you understand that you are both under the master lordship of Christ. So that brings us to so what? Let me make a couple of general comments, and here it is. Walking together requires order and good discipline. Paul understood that. This is meant to be a section of scripture that is a practical guide for how godly relationships ought to work. Remember that the goal is unity or harmony, both within the context of the home and the workplace. So question number one this week for the so what, how are your relationships at home? If you're married, is Christ the head of your house? How is that being displayed by you? Can it be seen by the kids? Are there any attitudes that need improving? Maybe this is a great conversation for you and your husband to have on a on a Saturday morning when you're not hurried, take a little walk on the beach and discuss who needs to do what, who needs to improve where. And then in your relationships to work, 
Is your response to your boss given with a sincere heart? Is your work given every day wholeheartedly? And if you happen to be the boss or the supervisor, do you relate to your workers and your staff as Christ would? So my bottom line is to read to you again verse number 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray.